I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're listening to FP Interviews. In-depth conversations with interesting people. Footy Prime, your almost daily footy fix. Hello once again, football fans. Good Tuesday to you and welcome to Footy Prime Interviews. Now, Vancouver Whitecaps fans, we promised you we would cover you this season and we will. Um, I know it's not been a great start to the campaign. 4-0 loss to Columbus, then a better performance and a 0-0 against uh, New York City FC this weekend. But we'll get all the down low on the Whitecaps and also maybe a look into to the modern goalkeeper, exactly who he is what he is, and what he might become, and why he's worth $75 million these days. I mean, what is going on with goalkeepers? I don't get it. I'm James Sharman. Craig Forrest, speaking of weird goalkeepers, is here. Brennan Dunlop's here. And our guest today is a former Canadian international, of course, over 50 caps. His voice is really familiar to all you Canadian soccer fans. As a color man for TSN's Whitecaps coverage, it's Paul Dolan. Dolly, welcome to the show, finally. Yeah, good to be aboard, fellas. How are you? We're doing great. Um, this should be an interesting chat. Um, we get abuse from the West Coasters for not covering enough white caps. So here we are, and we'll we get do? some information. Well, <laughs> I'm sure we do. <laughs> You're just making that up. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, they're, they're pretty quiet bunch actually compared to the, the Toronto faithful here. Um, but you know, looking at the white caps this season, Dolly, last season, I think in some regards, he surprised got to the playoffs. But what's the buzz around the team this season in Vancouver? A lot of the buzz is around Vanny, I think. You know, he, he was a breath of fresh air coming into the side. To be fair, Mark DeSantos had kind of turned them around a little bit, and they were in the midst of a 10-game undefeated streak towards the end of last season. Uh, but that big loss against Pacific in the Canadian Championship meant the end to him. And Vanny came in and tried to keep it simple. He's very definitive about the style of play that he wants to play. He says he's the most zonal coach in the world. So he knows what he wants. I think he imparts it well with his team, um, almost to the point where he says, you know, they're getting sick of me drilling the same thing in over and over and over again. But he's got a system he likes. He's got a, a terrific personality that I think gets the most out of the players. At least we saw that towards the end of last season when they got themselves into the playoffs with that late push. Not the best start to this season. And I guess if the one thing I could be critical perhaps of, of the Whitecaps in the off season is if in the previous two or three years, their turnover was, you know, almost to the point of ridiculous with 14 players. I think the first year that Mark was there and then a dozen the next that there was too much shopping and changing 
is that they didn't do enough in this offseason. Now, that's still yet to be determined because I know Axel Schuster said that they're looking for specifically a defensive midfielder and a forward, among others, and that they have a target in Europe right now. And I do agree with the philosophy that get it right before you get it quick um, because, you know, building a squad takes some time, as you know, and they want to make sure they have the right players. They, they were very patient in picking up Ryan Gold last year, and he, I think, has turned out to be a very good fit a good player that the, the team can be built around. But when you look at the 11 that have started the first two games, in my opinion, they're still shy of being, uh, you know, a really competitive MLS team that they want to be. So it might take some time and some further evaluation. But for the most part, I like the building blocks. I really like what Vanny has done. And I think with one or two small tweaks here and there and some new pickups, that they can be a competitive squad again. Dolly, what was the reason uh, Max Crepo uh, left the club? And that's the big one, too. Uh, if you're not going to have improvements in the offseason, you certainly don't want to lose your most valuable player from the previous year or a couple of years, in fact. You know, he was MVP two years prior, and then he was injured the next year. And then last year, he was outstanding again. We don't know the the specific reason outside of personal matter, you know, a very special personal matter is how Axel Schuster went about saying it. And from all understanding that I have, it is zero to do with anything football or money related. It is specifically to do with the family matter. So, you know, in that regard, I think the Whitecaps did well by Max to uh, grant them that wish and to get a million dollars in general allocation money coming the other way to try to do something with that. Mm. But it's a downgrading goal. I really like Thomas Assal. I think he's got great upside, and maybe he becomes the next Maxime Crepeau. But if you're looking at Maxime Crepeau from last year to Thomas Assal this year, you know you can't sugarcoat the fact that that is a downgrade. Although he was a man of the match in the game against New York City, maybe he's a quick study. We saw a couple of years ago at the Orlando tournament, he came in at 20 years of age and was excellent. You know, I think there was a bit of a, a fallback last year, as there sometimes is. But, you know, building off of a 4-0 loss where I don't think the goals were his fault necessarily, he had an excellent game at home. And maybe he's a quick study and, and can turn this thing in the right direction quickly. We always talk about goalkeepers, the, the position just being an older man's you know position, right? And uh, I, I feel as though that's changed over the last decade. We start to see these stars emerge kind of mid-20s. But if you're Hassal, 22, all of a sudden given the starting job, um, you know, how – how much more difficult is it to to learn the trade as a 22-year-old in a league like that where I think, you know, the uh, the patience in Vancouver has certainly worn thin recently as opposed to having another couple couple years uh, behind a guy? Are they looking at a, a number one goalkeeper uh, maybe for the short term just so that he can learn from? I know that they want to get an experienced backup to at least push him for the number one spot and have that safety net if anything were to happen. You know, he had a couple of injuries last year. Notably, he had a a concussion issue that he needs to be careful about. So I, I know that that's in the works, but it's again about getting the right person to do that. Um, but at the same time, I think one thing we've seen with MLS now, particularly with the outfield players is there's not a reluctance is there to bring in players at a really young age and throw them to the wolves and, and let them do it. And the other thing I think that the Whitecaps have going for them is Yusuf Daha, the goalkeeper coach who loves a project, Worked with Max Scrapeau from a really young age 
and kind of developed him to the point where coming into his prime at age 27 this year, I think uh, Yusuf was excited to finally mold this into maybe Max being the best keeper in MLS. You know, a, a lot of people probably think he was top five last year, and I, I was among them. And we hope he's counted as number one probably within a couple of years after this World Cup because I'm sure Milan Boran will have other things to say, and who knows how long he'll go for. But I think Yusuf will want to look at Thomas Asal and say, here's another project for me to develop and fast track and do the right things to to quickly get him up to speed. And I think he's a very mature young kid, Thomas Asal, even though he's young in age. And, uh, Greg, you know what it's like. You get thrown in. I mean, I, I think my, my my best year as a keeper was when I was 20 years old at the World Cup. It all went downhill after that. But <laughs> there's, uh, I think sometimes naivete is a good thing. You get thrown in, and you're just there to stop shots. And, of course, you need to learn the important parts of the game, like sweeping in behind, reading the game, communicating. That was the thing that I struggled with most as a young player is demanding Bruce Wilson, a 34-year-old at left back, you know, pull in, tuck in or whatever. Um, <laughs> because, you you know, you're, you're shy about that as a youngster. But I feel that Thomas Assal is mature beyond that. And uh, I don't think that the fact that he's young is something that will impede him this year. No, you're right. I, I think the only with different, it comes down to different characters, different people, you know, whether you're comfortable with that uh, within yourself, within your game, in your own technical ability. I think uh, at 22, he's certainly uh, mature enough uh, and certainly has the capabilities and what an opportunity is for him, right? So Max Garipo is gone. It's an opportunity of a lifetime for this, uh, for this kid now to, to, to show what he can do. I, you know, the thing I noticed most at the end of the game as well, you know, it's nil-nil, you get a point. Ideally at home, you want all three, but he had a huge smile on his face. So I almost felt like there was a relief within him that I can do this because he made a game saver right at the end as well. Stabs a hand up, beautiful save off of volley, mm-hmm. uh, right at the 90th minute plus, and earns his team the point. And he made three or four saves earlier too. So it was almost like, a sense of relief and a belief that, yeah, I can do it at this level. And I think, you know, you build from strength to strength and you are only as good as your last game, but when your last game is a good one, you know, you go to the next one with confidence and hopefully that, uh, you know, he can maintain that kind of stone cold focus that he has and that that's something down the road where he has a strong belief in his own abilities that uh, regardless of what's happening in front of him, he can focus on doing right. You know, Dolly, we, we uh, you know, in our national team, we had Alex uh, or Alan Arrington on the other day. We talked about sort of BC soccer and all the, you know, the guys that were from British Columbia back in our day um, compared to what you see now. And you don't see nearly the development in British Columbia where it used to be such a hotbed. Uh, we do have the Vancouver Whitecaps set up, obviously, but uh, overall... What is it, you know, that's wrong sort of with the British Columbia setup where we're not seeing as many players being developed or am I missing something? No. And obviously I don't know the answer. I, I liked what Alan said. I listened to the show. He was great, by the way. And hmm. uh, as much as I know, you didn't necessarily uh, get coached by him. You knew him with the national team. I was coached by Alan at a young age uh, from the U16s, U18s. And one of the things I like most, just to kind of sidetrack a little bit, but one of the things I like most about 
being coached by Allen, whether he was an assistant or the head coach, was that he really did make the game fun. You know, you, you enjoyed the game. And, and as much as he has a great personality off the park, you know, his warm-up sessions were last one on someone's back or groups of three. You remember that, right? It, even with the national team, right? It wasn't this technically focused, get your stretches in to the line and back. It was, you'd done your warm-up and you're having a laugh and there's like a camaraderie and a galvanization of the squad as you're set to do the dirty work and get into the, the meat of the session. So it was those types of things that I really appreciated about Alan as a coach. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that we don't have that within BC soccer structure now. I, I really don't know the ins and outs of the specific reasons. I think some of the things that Alan detailed structurally are probably, you know, some of the reasons why. But, you know, if I look on the positive, I guess, and move away from BC, unfortunately, is what's happened in provinces like Ontario in particular, which is just starting to run away with the development. And whether that is more kids playing the game, uh, more uh, people coming into the country who choose soccer as their, their primary sport, it seems that could be a focus as well. And I'm not sure why that same demographic that's coming into the country in BC maybe isn't um, jumping onto the sport of soccer or developing like we're seeing in Ontario and other parts of the country. But uh, there is an imbalance right now, and it's unfortunate that BC, having been such a, a soccer hotbed, I think that was an anomaly too, that how many players came through and then the old North American Soccer League was from BC. Um, it's right. not needed to be balanced out. Uh, but to the point now where it's uh, the complete opposite is, is somewhat surprising. Back to the Whitecaps, I mean, obviously the, the fans are hungry for success there. Is the infrastructure in place for real success at, at that club within the context of, of Major League Soccer? Are, are they prepared to spend the money that's needed to be successful? Yeah, I actually think it's a little bit of a fallacy that the Whitecaps haven't spent or um, committed because if you look at the, well, even going back to the Whitecaps women, which they put together, uh, Greg Kerfoot put together uh, and committed to at a time when no one else in Canada was really stepping up. And then beyond that, the academy, which from day one has been heavily invested into. Have they seen the fruits of the labor through the academy? Probably not to the extent that they would want. Uh, but to some degree, too, you know, you're looking for that one crown jewel that might come through. I know Alfonso Davies was primarily developed, um, you know, on his own and through uh, associations in Alberta. But when he came to the Whitecaps, you get that player that comes through. And then maybe that's kind of a green light for the rest of the players or people seeing that, you know, players can come through the Whitecaps Academy. Again, I, I think that they would have hoped that they'd see more first teamers through there by now. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think that means that there's not been a commitment there. And, you know, last year, the Whitecaps were the top spending team in CONCACAF, believe it or not, in terms of player transfer fees. Um, you know, the prior year when they had brought in uh, Lucas Cavallini and uh, some of the other players that they brought in. And then Ryan Gold last year, they've invested in. You want to make sure that that continues because the rest of MLS is not just standing still. And I think from what I understand, you know, the things I hear is that there's no reluctance to continue to want to do that, which is a good thing. Hey, Dolly, does Vancouver have to overpay 
Because it seems to me that it's not necessarily the most attractive you know, free agent destination, right? Should it, I mean, it should be in a lot of ways. But from what I hear the, the, from the, the travel, especially with these you know Central and South American players, they just look at it on the map and realize that that extra two hours, three hours for my family to fly in or how few many fewer trips that is, that's an immediate deterrent. And unfortunately, they haven't had the success on the pitch to maybe kind of win that over. So is it is it a tricky free agent destination? It's probably the latter more than the former, Brendan. Like I, I feel like success uh, breeds success, and people want to go where they have an opportunity to be seen. Maybe if they want to be moved on, and is Vancouver a place or the Whitecaps a team that have uh, been competitive in MLS Cup playoffs or championships over the last few years? And obviously, the answer to that is no. But um, you know, the BC place itself, beautiful new. Uh, They've got a nice new surface there, if you want to call it field turf beautiful in any way that it can be. It looks great. And it's, uh, you know, much better than it was before. There's another positive, but, you know, a great facility in terms of when it's full. It is a great atmosphere at BC Place. A fantastic training facility. It really is. Um, I think there's a lot going for the club, including the city itself, you know, which is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. So. Yes, I think there could be some travel things that are considered, but I think mostly it's about players wanting to play for a successful organization. And once that can happen, if it does, you know, I think that they will have a, a bit easier time possibly attracting better players. I think we're about a month or so away, aren't we, from, uh, from knowing the destinations for, for the World Cup and the venues that um, there's been murmurings for a while that, that Vancouver might try and get back in on the conversation. I don't know how that's possible now. What are you hearing about that? I'm hearing it's very positive. And I would never have thought that uh, a couple of years ago. I was highly critical of the BC government, if that's you know where the final answer was lying, about not even considering it. And in my opinion, and we've seen cities come in and then fall out, uh, why didn't we do that right from the beginning? You know, you have the opportunity to assess it. You weren't writing that so-called blank check that they were worried about on day one. You're putting your name forth, and then with due diligence down the road, you make a decision from there, and people make their decisions from there. But, you know, I, I don't want to pin so much on the fact that Victor Montaliani is a BC boy. He grew up, you know, a few kilometers from BC Place. <laughs> and, of course, from where the Whitecaps used to play at Empire Stadium. Of course, he's going to have every best interest in wanting to see games in Vancouver. And again, he's not making these decisions by any means, but he is a FIFA vice president, CONCACAF president. And you just get a sense, or I do anyway, that, you know, the right thing was going to happen to make sure that Vancouver as a prime jewel in North America, North American soccer circles anyway, needs to be a host city in the World Cup. Absolutely must be. And yeah. with respect to Edmonton and Montreal, you know, it's it's got to be Toronto and Vancouver. I wish Montreal was in that mix. I love playing in Edmonton. I know, Craig, you did too. The support there, we saw uh, the support as well. But Vancouver has to be right at the top of that list with a 55,000-seat stadium that, of course, they convert to uh, the grass. Uh, and that'll be an expense. And there'll be some others as well, some of the security costs and whatnot. But I just feel that, you know, recent conversations that have taken place and even public um, comments have been made by John Horgan, the premier. It looks to me like I think Vancouver is going to get that spot. And, and you're right, James, I think it's 
the end of March by then that we'll we'll hear that confirmed one way or another. That's great news because I didn't think it was going to happen because what I was hearing uh, was they needed to get the bid in or at least get, like you say, their name in the hat. It wasn't a contract. They could pull out at any time. There were some, secure, uh, some security concerns about cost, um, how the heck CONCACAF and FIFA were going to give them that. All they could do is give them previous security costs, add inflation or whatever on top of that. But uh, they, they, they weren't in. And from that moment on, I thought it was pretty much dead. But to hear that they're back in the fold is, uh, is really good. And I'm glad that they're pushing for it. So uh, we'll see. Yeah. It sounded, too, as if, you know, whether it's an excuse and you use a reasoning that, you know, the last couple of years of COVID has hurt the tourism industry. So, you know, it sounded as if John Horgan was using a, a reason for we need to consider it when we didn't before. But I think it was a mess a couple of years ago, a few years ago, that I'm glad to see is being reconsidered and I think is actually, if anything, trending in the positive direction. Good. So, so pretty soon we can start a new rivalry, you know, where should Canada be based? And that'd be a nice new conversation for, for Canadians soccer <laughs> to get angry about. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, it's Toronto. So, hey, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, Donnie. No, um, buddy, we need Canada to be wherever they're comfortable. And I don't get into these petty arguments about BC place versus BMO. Where does John Herdman, where do the Canadian players feel they're going to get results? It absolutely has to be about that every time they step on the park. And it would be in a World Cup, I would think, as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. you, you, you think so. All right. To some goalkeeping conversations now, uh, I mentioned how it, it seems more and more now teams are spending lots of money on goalkeepers. In fact, the same money on goalkeepers as you see in strikers in some cases at the moment. What, what's changed? I mean, it seems now keepers are, are more important. It, it's ridiculous, but it seems to be more important now than ever before, given that the price tag is associated. I don't know exactly what's changed uh, to do that. I just think you look at the explosion of the game in general and I mean, what about coaches? The, the amount of money that's being spent on coaches versus in the past. I don't know. Let's look at a, a, even a different industry. The amount of money that's being spent on announcers. You know, if we're talking about in our industry, right? Uh, well, well, some, some yeah. What money is being spent Speak on yourself, Dolly? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, look what the Amazon and Fox and ESPN are throwing around with NFL uh, analysts and play-by-play guys. You know, it's just, I think, the world in general um, and the game of football in general, it's exploding as a as a business in so many different ways that every position is looked at. I mean, the fact that you've got, and it's funny because Alan referred to a throw-in coach at Liverpool, but, you know, the amount of staff and the amount of specialization that's going in now. So the next thing is goalkeeper coaches. You know, you've got to have the goalkeeper whisperer uh, so that he's working with this specific keeper. But it's the most important position on the park. Am I wrong? <laughs> nope, you're not wrong, Dolly. <laughs> you're not wrong, <laughs> buddy. Biased room here. This no. is why we're seeing an explosion. It's about time the money's being spent in that area. Yeah, no, you're you're right. I mean, I had uh, Jonathan Barnett was my agent, and you know, for the longest time, he was like, "It's we, we can't we can't get the goalkeepers past the sixty thousand pounds a week margin, right?" And then now, now you got De Gea making what two hundred fifty thousand pounds a week or something. Oh, it's just incredible. Now, whether he's worth it or not, uh, it's all relative. It's all relative to. Yeah. You know, Colin Miller's favorite line is, uh, and he'll say this on every pregame show, the Whitecaps is, "I'd like to say a goalkeeper 
makes or breaks 12 points for you every year. Um, that's a lot of points. That's a lot of points. Um, now, mm-hmm. you, know, you could argue that your striker does that or your, I don't know, left wing back does that. But, but can you really argue that in such, such a central and focused position, you want to have someone that you trust. You want to have someone that is going to make game saving stops, not just kind of go through the motions of doing what he should be doing. He needs to every now and then pull off something that, oh, you, you know, you didn't expect mm-hmm. and you're paying for that. That's, that's what you're seeing, I think, is an overpayment on game changing keepers now are the ones that will pull off a save that the others aren't. And, you know, wins you that title or, or doesn't based on how he plays on any given day. Dolly, one of the, one of your, your biggest assets, uh, was your ball striking. Um, if there was anybody that could pair to Ederson, and that's one of the major reasons why he, uh, he's at Man City is his, his distribution and his absolute ping on him that he can get very quickly to 80 yards and put Aguero in on that from occasion that type of with the new style of play being able to play short inside your box keep possession I really enjoy it it's I think a lot has to do with the pitches as well they're all perfect nowadays so you can you can get away with that but do you ever think about that from your ball striker ability because from you know from one step you could you could put somebody in on a goal kick. I'm pretty confident about that. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. And and I, I've got to be honest, as good as I may have been at that, my left peg would have brought me right back down to nil. So, <laughs> oh, we're not worried about your left peg. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, that's the other thing is it needs to be an all-rounded game, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, you might You might have a tonk on you. But if you can't get out of a situation where you're caught down a cul-de-sac on your left foot, what good is it? Um, you need to be equally adept at cutting back or being comfortable on either foot. It's not just the long one. It's now it's the floated one to the touchline, the guy to, to head it on. It's the, you know, again, I keep bringing Alan up, but if you watch or you read his Twitter all he's talking about day in and day out is, I can't believe these guys are playing out of the back. Direct passes blindly to the man in, in the middle of the goal to either play it back or get cut out more often than not from side to side. But you have to have the confidence to be able to do that. You know, obviously you and I both would have tailored our game to adapt to that because that's what's demanded now. Mm-hmm. I actually played in the state in the in the ages where you didn't fancy it, just knock it back and I'll pick it up. Dino's off style. And then roll it and pick it up and roll it and pick it up. It's amazing that that even existed in the game anymore. It's so much better having to have an all-rounder uh, between the sticks. And I, I love the, the development of goalkeepers and you know them coming off the line, them coming up for corner kicks now in the late stages of the game. I'd love to have gotten a green light to do that. I might have veered towards the halfway line once in my career. Um, but you know, it, it would have been so much more fun to be involved kind of in a more fully rounded way than, you know, we were back in the old days. Yeah. Goalkeeping is cool now. You're also, you're also one of the quickest players. Uh, sorry, Danny. You're also one of the quickest players. It was one, maybe one of the Canadian national team problems in, in sprint races, we, uh, <laughs> the, the goalkeepers, the goalkeepers are generally the best out of it. Well, I guess that's, you know, again, I, I don't want to always uh, take the compliments, which I appreciate, uh, Craig. Thank you. That was my strength, but it did take me 15 minutes to do the 12 minute run. That, <laughs> yeah. that was an area I was not good in. Uh, Paul James used to lap me for fun 
uh, in the 12 minute run. But yeah, again, you know, um, that was what I think was a strength of the keeper in those days was quickness off the line and quickness to get to the corners and things like that. And you didn't need to necessarily have that endurance. I will say this though, is that in hindsight, and that's one good thing about when I was able to become the goalkeeper coach of the Canadian team as well from 03 until I guess basically 2019 was imparting some of the things, the old adage, if I knew then what I know now. And the Tony Waiters literally used to say, well, don't worry too much about your long distance running. I remember a time we're up in Breckenridge, Colorado, ahead of the World Cup and we were doing altitude training. I think it's 9,000 feet in Breckenridge there. And it was torturous running to prepare for the World Cup to get the fitness levels up. And the players would take off and I was miles behind. So I would hide behind a stump until they came back down the same hill. And then I'd rejoin <laughs> and, and catch up to make it like a close 10th or 11th place. Uh, <laughs> Tony had a wink. He knew what was going on. But, you know, you need to be fit as a goalkeeper because in the 70th or 80th minute down in El Salvador or Honduras in the midday sun, you know, your mental sharpness goes if you're not physically fit. So, you know, those are some of the things that I know now that uh, if I had known at the time too, and it was a different era anyway in terms of fitness. You know, Johnny Giles with the white cap, he used to just throw the players on the field and it was five-a-side every single session. There was no fitness concerns. There was no protein and um, you know, uh, food concerns or anything like that. It was just get out and play. And things have evolved and developed from there. Uh, but I think the, the modern keeper is as fit an athlete, especially when I see them with the Canadian team, they're all ripped. You know, none of these dad bods that we used to sport, but it's a different era and, uh, for the better, I think. I thought, Dolly, you were going to say your fitness training included just going up the grouse grind a few times a year and you were set. You were good. <laughs> I've done that once, Brendan, and I think that's the last time as well. <laughs> Only once, eh? Uh, the question. I'm surprised you did it once. <laughs> yeah. No, you are surprised, aren't you? Dolly. Yeah. Dolly talks about preparing at altitude for Mexico. Uh, what's this Canadian team going to do for Qatar? Are they going to go to the equator in, uh, in July and just see how hot they can handle it and max out till they sweat out or what? Yeah, that's good. For- uh, I think that, um, you know, the preparation for Qatar, I was in Qatar a couple of years ago with the national team. We actually played a couple of friendlies there. And it is, I don't know, it doesn't seem like a World Cup destination to me. It's just, mm. I think of it as flat dirt, like the moon's surface with a, a stadium popped up here and there. I wonder how it's going to have that World Cup atmosphere, especially in, in COVID times. And I, I'm a little bit sad for the, the Canadian team to finally qualify for a World Cup and it's going to be held in a place like Qatar, you know, with respect. I mean, I, the, the people were brilliant. We, I really enjoyed it. I know all the political stuff um, about whether or not they should have been chosen and, you know, what they've done with migrant workers and everything else and building the stadiums. I mean, that can't, can't be overlooked. But if I'm looking at it specifically as a country that's hosting the World Cup, it just doesn't seem like it's a... Uh, a place that, that will put on an event that is, you know, going to be memorable and anything off the field. But for the players themselves, all they're focused on is, you know, we're in this tournament. Let's, let's be honest. What'd you say? 99.84%. They're getting there. And this is fantastic. And the thing that I think that's most important, not most important, but, um, 
you know, to any doubters to say, oh, yeah, but, you know, they had three and a half spots to get in. And, you know, there's a bigger um, um, number of teams that are in the World Cup now. They're going to top the table. And they're doing it in style. And they're undefeated. And I think that they could finish that way. And, you know, get a, a more favorable pot draw as well. So this has been an incredibly impressive run. I couldn't be prouder. And in terms of their preparation for their, you know that John Herdman will leave no stone unturned. So whether it's uh, training in Qatar itself ahead of time or in the equator, whatever you say, Brennan, you know, they'll do the thing that uh, gives them the very best chance of progressing from the group. You know, speaking about uh, actual preparation, uh, talk about a little bit about 86 preparing for that very first game. You get the nod against France, uh, Platini, uh, unbelievable team. Um, but how, I mean, I know that there is snorkels involved in, in some of the training sessions to get used to altitude. Uh, um, but uh, what was the actual preparation leading into that compared to now, do you think? Yeah, you brought up something I'd completely forgotten about. Was that uh, Alex McKechnie who, who told you about that? We were up at SFU, no. I think. Um, yeah, we were doing yeah. some stuff in the in the medical center or whatever with snorkels on us. And I I went to take the blood test ahead of going down there and I got pricked and fainted. So, I, you know, what does that say about my uh, readiness? But, um, yeah, we I forgot about that. We had the snorkels to resist the, the air and everything else. You know, we played in Lyon, which was at, uh, I think it was a mile high or 6,000 feet it might have been. And, you know, aside from the physical training, and I mentioned us going to Colorado Springs as well as Breckenridge, but um, I'll always use this as my excuse for allowing that goal against France. And it, it's, it's true in a way, and Craig, I think you can, you can agree to this or not, is that the ball takes a different flight. It, it continues on you, especially cross balls. And I thought I had a track on the ball coming from the flank. I was sure of it. You know, this is adjusting for the fact that we had been down there and knew that the, the flight was a little longer and it doesn't die as much. It's caught up in the, in the air. It just continues to sail and it just kept going and going. And I got the hand up and just the slightest of fingertips thinking, well, I hope that's enough. And then there's this geezer in behind me at the back post who nods it back and, and into, into the empty goal. So that, I think, more than anything for a goalkeeper was what needed to be adjusted for was dealing with how the ball travels in those types of environments. Mm -hmm. I found that at, in Azteca, the same thing is that we got one day to train there a couple of days and you're, you're literally trusting your, the flight on just the basis that you're at altitude. It's a really odd feeling because you feel that you're going to run, you know, you're just going to catch it chest high. And then next thing you know, it just, yeah, it just keeps going and going. It made you feel like Superman when you put the boot through it and hit that, uh, the console at the center of the Azteca, though, didn't it? You could uh, you that? welly the ball about 90 yards down the park. Yeah, I hit the, hit the center uh, speaker in the stadium, and the referee didn't know what to do. <laughs> he didn't stop playing. So continue, play continued. Never seen Oh, it just dropped. It actually hit it, and, uh, and all our guys are like, "Where is it?" Jesus, it could be it's a down in Tampa when the Rays hit the uh, the speakers inside the yeah the baseball stadium there. But yeah, it was 
it was a, a different scenario, you know, Mexico uh, and the altitude and, and dealing with that as players. I remember going into that game against France and not being that nervous. I think because we were such underdogs, we came to the stadium and everyone outside the stadium is giving you the six, seven, eight fingers, like you're going to get absolutely pounded here. And things started off pretty well. We had a chance or two. And it's always good. You're, you're only 20 as well. Yeah. I think, again, that naivete thing I was talking about earlier is that I think you go in and the enormousness of it, the enormity, I guess, doesn't overwhelm you because you're just happy to be there in some regard. And then when things start going well, again, something I, I mentioned with Thomas Hassell is that you get that confidence in you and you play well when you're confident and you have that belief. There was a time midway through the game where we conceded a corner kick and I said to the guys, let's not drop this thing now. I'm having too much fun. Like I literally, I, it's maybe the, my best memory of the World Cup is I had a moment of presence to consider the situation and take it in and enjoy it and not let it pass me by. And then at the end saying, Oh, geez, I didn't even know what, what went on there. I, I, you know, I took that moment to appreciate we're in a World Cup here and it was an incredible moment. And of course, I kept thinking at 20 years old. We can go back here two, three, four times, and we never go back. So you do appreciate the fact that you actually were able to get there at least the one time. Uh, that's a great point. Just don't don't take it for granted, right? You know, yeah. when I think about that that World Cup, and you speak to people, people always love saying, "Oh, yeah, it didn't score a goal in that World Cup." But also, you know, for a team in its first World Cup against the States, sorry, the USSR against Hungary. France, I mean, they're, they're footballing nations, and you didn't concede that many goals either. Five goals in three games is quite fine. Do you think you get that team gets a bad rap simply because of that one crazy stat? I guess so, but I, it doesn't bother me at all. I think Bobby um, jokes about it as well. He had our probably best chance, Bob Leonard Uzi, against USSR from inside the six, but he jokes about it. He goes, you know, the keeper made me look good by actually diving. It was such a soft shot, but um, <laughs> it wasn't our strength getting forward, and as you say there, James, I mean, those are tough teams, right? Uh, the defending champions of Europe in France, Hungary, and the USSR were massive teams at the time. The USSR went at the Saev in goal, and they pounded uh, Hungary 6-0 in the game that we went to see uh, ahead of our game, but uh, good sides. You know, I think the USSR went to the, the final of the Euros in 88, if I'm not mistaken, right after that against Poland, right? The Van Basten goal. So, and there was only 24 teams as well. Yeah, right? yeah. And Tony Waiters had us playing a style that he knew best suited the players, which was to be practical, get it long, fight for it up front, pressure from the front, defend well, and then take any chances that we might create, which, uh, again, like I said, against France to start, I think we caught them off guard a little bit. Bridgie had a chance at the back post. Igor went around uh, Joel Batts and had an open goal, and it was cleared away. So there I, I'm proud of the way Canada played. And uh, as you say, with, with 24 teams, you're in that mix and the hope that things will continue from there. And obviously that didn't happen. Uh, we lost in 88 to Guatemala. You know, not to make excuses or anything, but once you don't get in, and Alan referred to this too, is that, you know, the funding kind of doesn't come. It's hard to continue to build from there. But, you know, the Guatemala qualifying series in 88 was a home and away. And you're done. We go down there, and uh, John Lemiatis um, gives away a penalty, kind of a soft penalty, I thought. But Carl Valentine got stoned in the last minute, top corner. 
which would have been a, a massive away goal. And we come back, and they score the flukiest of goals. So we're down the one nil from the away. And then Randy Samuel goes to clear the ball, hits, hits the shin of the Guatemalan, and loops into the top corner. And there's their away goal. So now we're chasing it a bit. We actually go down 2-0. We put three in the other way. I remember we've got the third. It's pouring rain at Swangard. And uh, Randy Samuel's all over Bridgie. We're through. We're through. We're bloody not through. It's 3-3 now. And they've got the two away goals. But, you know, not to knock Randy, but again, that's something where there's just not the awareness maybe of what was needed. Now, it was a late goal, and we pressed to try to get something late. But you win that one 3-2, but you lose the away 1-0. You're out of the World Cup. And now mm. it's 18 games or more that you have a chance to kind of massage your way through and the best teams get there. So, you know. Mexico were actually banned from that World Cup as well. So even a better chance. That's right. Yeah. You're, you don't have to rub that one. I forgot about that too. That's right. They've used some overage players in the youth teams, haven't they? Mm. Yeah, that's correct. And then in 94, there was only one and a quarter spot. So it, it was getting, uh, it was yeah. tough. Well, you know, a year from now, we'll be having a podcast and looking back on Canada's most recent World Cup, which is still, uh, they're not there yet, but let's face it, they're there. It's uh, very exciting times. Uh, Dolly, thank you so much for this, mate. Always enjoy your broadcasts when I stay up late and watch them out there. But uh, And I even enjoy working with you those few times at Sportsnet over the years. It was a ton I of fun. We had some fun away days. It's a real shame that the broadcast crews aren't traveling anymore, but we did have some good times. I love doing the TFC games. What a team that they had during that period as well with Javinko and the rest. And yeah, it was good times. And I'm hoping too that the Whitecaps can bring back some of that here in Vancouver. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, mate. We'll, we'll chat soon and we'll definitely be following the, the Whitecaps throughout this season on the podcast. And uh, we'll get you back on. Great to speak to you guys. All the best. That is Paul Dolan. Thanks, Dolan. Hope you enjoyed that, everyone. Uh, we're back in a couple of days' time as the podcast continues. For Dunlop, for Forrest, I'm Shams. Cheers for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.